I want to talk this morning about stenosis. We're working our way through the fourth gospel. We're still in the prologue. I said early on, as I guess at the very beginning, I don't believe by the Apostle John, I believe that Lazarus wrote this gospel. He was the disciple whom Yeshua loved. We began last week to look at verse 14. I, this is in the complete Jewish Bible because I think it, it really captures the essence of it. It says, the Word became a human being and lived with us. And we saw His Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Now, we kind of camped on this. We really didn't get into this verse last week, and we're not going to get into this verse this week. I'm still doing introductions to this verse, because this verse is just such a fundamental key verse that you've got to understand. Verse 1 told us the eternal Word who was with God from the beginning was God. He was the Creator of all things. And this staggering verse teaches us the truth that Yeshua of Nazareth, Become man. God left heaven, became a man, lived a sinless life, and died a substitutionary death. Now, Lazarus gives us a very brief account here in verse 14, simply telling us that the Word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Now, last week we looked at the doctrine of the incarnation. You all remember that? You remember what that is? Can you explain it? The doctrine of the hypostatic union. Very important that we grasp these concepts. Because this subject is so important, and because Lazarus really doesn't go into a lot of detail of it here in verse 14, I want to take another week and I want to look again at this idea of hypostatic union, of kenosis, of of the incarnation, and, and try to fill in all the blanks so you have a good understanding of what's going on. If someone was to ask you, what is the single greatest passage in the New Testament on God becoming man, what would you tell them? Single greatest passage. John 1.1, 1, 1, okay. That's to me, would be the second greatest passage. How about Philippians 2, 5 through 11? One of the greatest passages we have in the New Testament dealing with the kenosis. Without question, it's this passage. This text in Philippians here is majestic. It describes the condensation, condescension, excuse me. Condensation, yeah. I think that's a different word. Condescension of the second person of the Trinity into human incarnation. This passage is a Christological gem. It teaches us the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the kenosis, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. This is rich theological ground. Yet the really interesting thing about this passage is Paul doesn't put this in Philippians 2. I don't think for the primary purpose of teaching doctrine, he sticks this passage in here as an illustration of humility. This passage was an early Christian hymn. See, they did things a little different than we did. They took the rich theology and they sang it. You know, when you sing something, you learn it better. You get familiar with it. And they sang theology. This was a Christian hymn. There's a lot of debate. Did did Paul write this passage? Or did he take the hymn? I think Paul wrote it. Then they used it as a hymn. 
That's my take on it, alright? But Paul never conceived of any practice that was a biblical practice that wasn't related to the doctrinal teaching of the Word of God. It's a truth of the Word of God that doctrine is the foundation of Christian living. And that's the problem today. We're trying to skip doctrine and tell people what they ought to do and not do. And there's no foundation for it. All through Paul's epistles, he lays down doctrine and then he calls for Christians to do something. In Romans, 11 chapters of doctrine. And it's not till we get to chapter 12. That Paul tells us to do something. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. But it doesn't say that until 11 chapters of doctrine. That's Paul's pattern. We see the same thing in Ephesians. Three chapters of doctrine. It's not until you get to verse 4 that he begins to ask you to do something. Because you have to know before you do. And this is why the church today is so weak. And so filled with sin, there's an absence of teaching the theology of the Word of God. And the reason people don't teach it is for the most part, Christians don't want it. We want three points and a poem. We want to feel good, tickle our ears, and send us out. And that's why the church today is filled with spiritual pygmies who don't know who God is. Theology is to motivate us to proper living. Men live and act according to what they believe. And what they believe comes from the doctrinal teaching of the Word of God. And as I said, what's really interesting to me is Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11, Paul is looking at the incarnation. He's looking at the kenosis. He's looking at the hypostatic union, not for their own sake. But he basically gives this as an illustration of humility. The main point is to show the humility of Yahweh becoming man. And here you see self-sacrifice. Here you see self-denial, self-giving, and humble love. In Philippians 2.5, he starts this out. He says to the Philippians, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Yeshua. The word attitude here is phroneo. It means your thinking, your mindset. And the attitude that is being called for here is the one of verses 3 and 4, which is the attitude of humility. Look at these two verses. If people would begin to grasp these two verses and live them out, we'd be living in a different world, people. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Can you even imagine what our world would be like if people did that? Treated everybody... All of you have somebody that you view as more important than yourself. But all of us have a whole lot more people that we view beneath us. And we're on this line somewhere. And what he's saying is put yourself at the very bottom. And view everybody as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. But also for the interests of others. You know, humility in Scripture is extremely important. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at 1 Peter 5.5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We're to learn from Christ and His example of humility. 
And we can only learn from Him as we study Him through the Word of God. As we learn theology, as we learn doctrine, we learn about our God, then we can imitate Him. John 13.15 says, Yeshua speaking, He says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now Christ says this in the context of washing the disciples' feet. He's washed their feet and He says, I've given you an example. And many churches have taken this over literally and said, hey, we got to wash each other's feet. That's not, he's saying, listen, you need to be humble is basically the bottom line here. He is our example of humility. And in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we have the descent of Yahweh the Son to humiliation. You know, we can't copy his deity. We can't copy the incarnation or his perfection or his miracles or his redemptive work, but we are called to copy his humility. Verse 5 is a transition from exhortation to illustration. This illustration will have no impact on your lives if you don't understand it. So we need to first understand theology so we can be motivated by it to apply it to our lives. He says in verse 5, have this attitude. The position of the pronoun this is emphatic and it shows the exhortation reaches back to verses 2 through 4 for its definition. While the pronoun who of verse 6 connects the exhortation with the illustration of 6 and 8. Christ is our example. He's the model we are to follow. Now this verse answers the question, what was Christ like before His incarnation? And two Greek words answer this question for us in verse 6. The word existed and the word form. Some Bibles, instead of having existed there, have the word being and form. The word existed is the Greek word, word hooparko. It's not the commonest word for being in the Greek. That would be a me. But it's a verb that stresses the existence of a person's nature. It's to express a continued state of a thing. It's unalterable. It is unchangeable. So Paul said, Yeshua the Christ unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. This speaks of his pre-existence, and this is what we saw in John 1.1. The word form is morphe. And morphe has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton and Milligan say, Morphe is a form which is truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence or essential being. In other words, Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. Now let's compare... These two, two Greek words for form. Alright? One word is morphe. Morphe is the essential character of something. The other word is schema. That's the outward form it takes. Morphe is the essential form which never alters. Schema is the outward form which changes from time to time and circumstance to circumstance. For example, the morphe of a human being never changes. But his schema the schema of a human being changes. We all start out at conception as a clump of cells. But at conception, we are humanity. And then we become a baby, then a child, then a youth, then a teenager, then an adult. And I guess if I live long enough, I'll be elderly. <laughs> Watch it. Our morphe is humanity, but our schema changes. Roses, daffodils, tulips, primroses all have one morphe, they're flowers. 
But their schema is different. Now, in verse 8, the word appearance here is schema. Being found in the appearance of a man. Outward appearance, he looked like a man. So when Paul uses Huparco existed in morphe form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua has always existed in the unchangeable essence of the being of God. Yeshua is Yahweh and He always was. Now see, a lot of people don't get this. A lot of people have this idea. Yeshua came into being at Bethlehem. He just poop. He was born there and then He started. If you got that idea, you're way off track. And you're worshiping a false god. Because Yeshua is not only human, He's human and divine. Yeshua is Yahweh the Son. And this is where the incarnation begins. This is the point from which He descends. God becomes man. Paul says that Yeshua did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word grasp here is the Greek word harpagmas. And it means to take by force, to seize. It's used only here in the Scriptures. The noun refers to taking an attitude of seizing something. So what this is saying is our Lord did not consider the expression of His divine essence such a treasure that it should be retained at all cost. He was willing to waive His rights to the expression of deity. Let me give you a a Curtis paraphrase on this. Who always being the exact essence of the eternal God, did not consider equality with God as something that must be demonstrated. He wasn't worried you had to know who He was. He didn't have to demonstrate His deity, is what it is saying. The word equality here is ISIS. Nothing to do with the terrorist group we hear so much about today, alright? But ISIS means exactly the same in size, in quality, in quantity, in character, in number. We use it in English this way, for example, an isomer is a chemical molecule having a slightly different structure from another molecule, but being identical with it in terms of chemical elements and weight. Its schema may be different, but its morphe is the same. We use the term isomorph, having the same form, or isometric, equal in number. He is saying that Yeshua is exactly equal with God. Is God omniscient? Then so is Yeshua. Is God omnipresent? Then so is Yeshua. Is God omnipotent? Then so is Yeshua. Is God the Creator? Then so is Yeshua. Is God the beginning and the end? Then so is Yeshua. But He did not consider His equality with God as a prize that He had to be hung on to and demonstrated. He's equal with God in every way, but while He walked the earth, He didn't look equal to God. He looked like a man. And you know, pride says... I want you to know who I am. Where humility says, my rights to express who I am are not important. And we see this contrast between the first and the last Adam. The first Adam senselessly sought to grasp equality with God. Yeah, I want to be like God. And so he disobeys. And through pride and disobedience, he loses fellowship with Yahweh and he's kicked out of sacred space. Put outside the garden. The last Adam, Christ, enjoyed true equality with God but refused to derive any advantage from it. He humbled Himself and became obedient and therefore God highly exalted Him. And this is where it starts. Humility begins with an attitude of willingness to lay aside our rights. You know, we talk a lot about our rights, but we don't hear too many people talking about our responsibilities. 
You know what causes disunity and conflict? It's two people concerned about their own rights. All right? I mean, just watch the, you know, the campaigning that's going on now. They're breaking out into fist fights and violence and, you know, because people have different ideas. I like this guy. You like this guy. So let's fight over it. It's just total conflict. Well, Yeshua didn't grasp or clutch or cling to his rights. But verse seven says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The word but here is a contrastive, not this, but this. And the word emptied is the Greek word kanao. It means to make empty. Figuratively, it means to abase, to neutralize, to make of none effect, of no reputation. Now, this is where they get the doctrine of the kenosis. It's from this word kanao, which means to empty. It's the self-emptying of Yahweh the Son. Now, here's the question. What did he empty himself of? God left heaven, became a man. It says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Well, let me first give you some false kinetic theories, all right? William Barclay says he emptied himself of his deity to take unto himself humanity. Now, if you were listening last week, okay, you know that's not true, all right? If he emptied himself of his deity, how could he say, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Men are not eternal, only God is. All men are mortal. So if he emptied himself of deity, he would cease to exist. Because he is deity. So if he emptied himself, he would cease to exist. And guess what? So would you. Because Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, speaking of Christ, and in Him all things are held together. He didn't exchange His deity for humanity. The doctrine of the hypostatic union that we looked at last week teaches that Yeshua had two natures in one person. He was human, He was divine, but He was one person. He was the theanthropic person, the God-man. And that's why we looked at the hypostatic union last week. You have to understand that. Some say he laid aside some or all of his divine attributes. And they appeal to verses like 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Well, that doesn't really teach he laid aside some of his attributes. They also appeal to Mark 13 32. But of that day or hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Does this verse show that somehow he laid aside some of his, the attributes of deity? If he doesn't know something, people say, how could you say he's God? This is people who argue for the pure humanity of God. They'll take this verse and they say, see, he didn't know. He wasn't God. God is omniscient. Well, the ignorance here is in the human nature, not the divine. Remember, two natures. In his human nature, he learned as he went along. He learned obedience. He grew in wisdom. This is another verse they'll use to try to prove just nothing but humanity for Christ. And Yeshua kept interest increasing in wisdom and statue and favor with God and men. So they say he's growing, he's learning. Yes, as a human being, he is. Two natures, one person. Let me give you four reasons why Yeshua could not lay aside some or any of His attributes. First of all, 
This would be incarnation by divine suicide. It's impossible to surrender an attribute without changing the character or essence of what it belongs. To rob God of any attribute would be to destroy His deity. During the incarnation, Yeshua was God without any change in His deity. The hypostatic union is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. So it would have destroyed His deity. Secondly, it would be an annulment of the Trinity. He's not deity anymore, so now you have a duo instead of a trinity. And that doesn't work, alright? Thirdly, this would be a denial of one of his attributes, immutability. How can God be immutable if he changes? Well, now he's not immutable. I would hate that because this is one of my very favorite attributes of God. You know how fickle people are? You know how quick people change? You know, they love you one minute, they want to kill you the next. We see it in Scripture, right? Oh, Paul. Paul, and he's preaching. Oh, you're a God. They worship him the next minute. They take him out and stone him. We've got to kill this guy. What is wrong with people? That's why I like this about God. God doesn't change. He doesn't get up on the wrong side of bed. He's not mad today. Okay? For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. He is That's a doctrine of immutability. He's the same all the time. Now, if the Lord Yeshua had laid down some or all of His attributes, then we cannot say that God is immutable. He can change. But change would have to be from... Better to worse, which can't see God getting bad, or from worse to better, and you can't see God improving. We must have immutability because all the promises of God depend on His immutability. See, if He wasn't immutable, He made you a promise, but later He changed His mind. People do that, right? They break contracts all the time. But He doesn't. He's immutable. So if ever He loved me, He loved me forever. Our whole saving experience depends on Him being immutable. Therefore, His promises are eternal and they're valid forever. Fourthly, it annuls the atoning work of Christ. See, if He's not God, He loses the saving power. Because the death of our Lord Yeshua is sufficient for the sins of men because the person who laid down His life had infinite value because He was God-man. If he's just a God, just a man, then he has to die for his own sins. But because he's the God man, he can die for yours. So the question then is, what did he empty himself of? What? His glory. Well, see, that's a controversial answer because a lot of there's verses we're going to see in a couple of verses here of him demonstrating his glory. They saw his glory, you know, but he's right. That's what he emptied himself of. John 17, 5. Now, Father, this is the Lord praying. Now, Father. And this, again, this verse, verses like this destroy modalism. We talked about modalism. You know, people don't believe in a trinity. They believe God the Father put on the Son suit. And then He put on the Spirit suit. And now He's the Father suit. You know, He's, he's one person who just takes on different roles. That's modalism. But here you got Yeshua praying to the Father. Who's He praying to? Himself, when he changes to that person, he'll get the prayer and then he 
No, okay? Now, Father, he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he prays that the glory would be restored because the glory was laid aside when he became a man. Now, the Greek noun here for glory is doxa. And at first, the verb meant to appear or to seem. And then in time, the noun doxa came from it meant an opinion. In time, the noun was used for only having a good opinion about some person. And the verb came to mean to praise or to honor the one to whom a good opinion was held. Now, if a man had a right opinion about God, this meant that he was able to form a correct opinion of God's attributes. The Orthodox Jew, he knew that God was all-powerful, he was all-knowing, he was all-present, he was merciful, faithful, holy, just, loving, and so on. All of his other perfections. And when we acknowledge this, he was said to give glory, doxod, to God. Because God's glory consisted of His intrinsic worth embedded in His character. And all that could be known of God was merely an expression of that. Our word today, worth, is somewhat equal to the word glory or doxa. Because the word worth refers to intrinsic character. The worth of a man is his character. You ever heard anybody say, that person is worthless? You ever heard anybody say that? They have no worth. What? They can't do anything? I'm, that's kind of an exaggeration because I'm sure they could, they're worth something, right? But you, you know, we use that expression because they don't have any worth. By this they mean he has no character. The worth of God is God's glory. And when we praise God, we are acknowledging his worth-ship. And we shorten that, we call it worship. When you worship God, you're saying, you're worthy. This is who you are and you're worthy of my praise. That's what worship is. It's acknowledging God's worth. Now there's another, now that's part of glory. You hang on to that. But there's another entirely different meaning of the word glory, which is light or splendor. In Hebrew thought, an outward manifestation of God's presence involved a display of light. And when you see these manifestations throughout the Tanakh of angels or, or, you know, God, you see this brilliant light. The brilliant outward manifestations of God's presence was described by the word Shekinah or Shekinah. Alright? And the Septuagint, the word Doxa, is often used to translate Shekinah. And now you put these two meanings together of the word glory and you have a clear picture of Christ's oneness with God. And of the humbling of himself that he went through in the kenosis. When he became a man, he laid aside the brilliant manifestation of his glory. Except for one brief moment. When was that? There was a moment when he walked this earth, when he kind of pulled aside the flesh and just let the glory shine. Where was he? The Mount of Transfiguration. We saw the glory. All right? So he veiled his glory in the sense that he did not demonstrate his attributes and he didn't walk this earth in the power of his deity. He didn't have this brilliant glow. When they looked at him, they said, he's just a man. He walked the earth. And this is really important doctrine, people. Yeshua walked the earth in dependence of the Holy Spirit. 
Whatever Yeshua did something, he did it in the power of the Spirit. He didn't do it in the power of his deity. We've got to get that because he's our example. He shared the full divine nature. He was clothed with splendor that had always surrounded God's person. But during the incarnation, he laid aside his outward glory. John 10.33, the Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They viewed him as just a man. See, laid aside, laying aside the glory involved the surrender of the voluntary use of his divine attributes. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He veiled his pre-incarnate glory by taking on humanity, but he didn't destroy it. He didn't diminish it in any part. It's like when the sun is obscured by a cloud. The sun hasn't changed a bit. It's every bit as powerful, every bit as strong. It's just blocked. It's obscured for a while by the clouds. The sun wasn't affected by the cloud. It's just our vision that was. Well, Christ was never diminished in glory, but He veiled His glory from His own will. He didn't use the attributes to benefit Himself. They were surrendered, not They were voluntarily restricted in keeping with the Father's plan. He gave up any independent exercise of certain divine attributes and living among men with their human limitations so he could truly be a man. See, if he had access to the divine nature and he could do all things, then it's like, how's he our example? We don't have that. But if he lived as a man and dependent upon the Holy Spirit, he was a real human. He lived in the dependence upon the Holy Spirit for everything that he did. He says, but if I cast out demons, how? By the Spirit of God. We see the miracles and we were like, oh yeah, he's God, he can do that. No, he's doing it in the power of the Spirit. Luke 4.14 And Yeshua returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In Matthew 4, the temptations of Christ were related to his deity and to the kenosis. His humanity longed for the things that his deity could provide. But he didn't exercise the prerogatives of his deity. He was dependent upon the Father. Now, let me talk for just a minute about a, something that every time I talk about it, just it's controversial. That's the impeccability of Yeshua. Yeshua was not liable to sin. He was exempt from the possibility of doing wrong. All right, that's called impeccability. Christ was impeccable. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Christ was tempted to his, to his person, but without sin. Listen, He was tempted more than any person on earth ever has been. And the human nature of Christ is temptable and peckable, but combined in hypostatic union with the divine nature, He is temptable but impeccable. Let me give you an illustration. If I get in a rowboat with a shotgun loaded with ammo and I go out, I row out into the bay and I attack an aircraft carrier, is that really an attack? That's a real attack. Do I got any chance of defeating that aircraft carrier? They probably wouldn't know I was out there. Okay? What's that little noise? You know, I mean, the flight deck is so high, they probably wouldn't even know I was out there in my rowboat. There's no chance of defeating that carrier, but it is an attack. See, Christ was the God-man. 
It's like if you take a coat hanger, you can bend it. You can bend it just about any way you want to. But if you take that same coat hanger and weld it to an I-beam, how much are you going to bend it? It's not going to bend. Okay? So some have, you know, well, he was tempted. Yes, he was tempted. Let me ask you this. When you say that Christ, when I say that Christ is impeccable and he could not sin because he was the God-man, people say, well, then how can the temptation be real? And my response is always the same. Have you ever been tempted and not given in? Have you ever done that? I mean, do this. Hopefully, at least one time you've been tempted and didn't give in, okay? You overcame the temptation, all right? (laughs) Was this temptation still real? It's not any less real if you give in to it. Matter of fact, if you don't give in, it's harder because it stays there. Temptation ends when you give in, all right? So Yeshua was God, the God-man. And he lived among men in dependence upon his Father. He found his strength and his wisdom in the pure humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then when he prayed, we can understand his praise were Prayers were real prayers. His decisions were real decisions. His actions were real, genuine, human. And he can be an example for us because that's how we're to live our lives today. We're to walk this earth in dependence upon the Spirit for everything we do. And when we quit that dependence and start walking and trusting in our own humanity, we fail. He's truly an example. He was human. He felt the temptation. He experienced it to his fullest because he never gave into it. Now, Paul uses a play on words here in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Empty conceit is the word kenodoxia, which means empty glory. It's from kanao, the kenosis, and doxa, glory. And then in verse 7, he uses the word kanao, which means he emptied himself. So we're not to do anything from Empty conceit, empty glory, but we're to empty ourselves. We're not to build ourselves up and insist on our own rights. Christ didn't do that. We're to be Christ's followers. We're to be the representatives of God on the earth. And when people look at us, they should see Christ. We talked about it earlier this morning. We are sacred space. The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. You know, all the other gods had idols, right? They all had little images and they bowed down to them and did all this stuff to their little images. How come Christianity, how come they never had idols? What is the idol of God? It's us, people. We are made in the image. We are the visible representation of God on the earth. His image. We're image bearers. We're to bear that. We're sacred space. God dwells in us. We're to carry that to the world. And so we as believers are constantly be practicing the kenosis of ourselves. What's really cool about this passage here, after Paul finishes the kenosis of Yeshua, he goes into the kenosis of Timothy, and he talks about how Timothy emptied himself. And Timothy became a servant. And then he goes into the kenosis of Epaphroditus. And he says, here's a man who almost died to, to minister for your sake. He almost died because of it. And he talks about two other men. So he doesn't give, just give us Yeshua, because sometimes that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> he gives us two other men. Say, these guys did it too. You can do it. All right. 
We're to constantly be practicing the kenosis of ourselves. We're to empty ourselves to make ourselves of no reputation. He says, taking the form of a bondservant. The word taking here is a circumstantial particle of manner. So the phrase explains how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And when he took the form of a bondservant, it veiled his glory. That's how he emptied himself. The word form here is morphe. means essential nature. We looked at this word just a minute ago. This is not a mask. This is not a Halloween costume. He didn't pretend he was a servant. In his essential nature, he became a servant. He took on the essence of a doulos, bond slave. Now in verse 6, we see that Christ was in the form of God, which refers to the possession of his essential attributes of deity. In verse 7, he takes the form of a bond slave, the slavery of a person who submits himself to the master in order to do his will in every respect. Now, in verse 6, we see the inner essence of God, the nature of deity. In verse 7, we see the inner essence of humanity. So when the question is asked, was Yeshua God or man? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Yes, He was 100% God. He was 100% man. This is the hypostatic union. Undiminished deity, true humanity in one person forever. This is God voluntarily becoming a servant. A.W. Pink says this, What marvelous grace we behold in that wondrous descent from heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger. It had been an act of infinite condescension if one who was the object of angelic worship had designed to come down to this earth and reign over it as a king. But that he should appear in weakness, that he should voluntarily choose poverty, that he should become a helpless babe, Such grace is altogether beyond our ken. (laughs) We don't use that word anymore. It means our understanding, our perception. Okay? Since matchless love passes knowledge, oh, that we may never lose our sense of wonderment at the infinite condescension of God's Son. That God became a man. Being made in the likeness of a bondservant. The word being here emphasizes the notion of becoming, a beginning. Do you see the contrast here from verse 6? Being or existed. Christ always existed in the form of God in verse 6, but He was made, He became at a point in time, the existence, the likeness of men. That's John 1.14. The Word became flesh. The word likeness here is homoioma. And homoioma means similar but different. Similar but different. Through his, though his humanity was genuine, he was different from all of the humans in the fact that he was sinless. We see the same Greek word used in um, Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness, homoioma, of sinful flesh. It suggests similarity but difference. He was... How was he different? He wasn't sinful. He was real human flesh. He felt pain, sorrow. He wept. He died. But he was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin, that's Christ, on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He took our sin, gave us His righteousness. Sound like a fair trade? It's a great deal for us. Knew no sin. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in appearance as a man. The word appearance here is schema, 
outward appearance. People saw him only as a man because he gave up the outward expression of deity. But not the essence. He still, his morphe was God. His glory was veiled. He looked like a man. The reality of his humanity is emphasized in this verse. Our Lord possessed true humanity, which is just as important as him possessing deity. To make atonement, he had to be a theanthropic person. He had to be a God-man. Represent man to represent God. We see his humanity all through the New Testament. He had a human birth, right? His conception wasn't human, but his birth was. Came through the birth canal like any other baby. He was wrinkled like any other baby. He was hungry. You know, Martin Luther wrote to him that says, The little Lord Yeshua, no crying he makes. That's not true. Is it sin to cry? He was a baby. That's what babies do. So we got this picture. He's a special baby. He never cries, never does anything, doesn't wet a diaper or anything else. He's just perfect. No, he was human in every sense. He did cry. Mary had to get up in the middle of the night and feed that kid and take care of him. He was a baby. He had human growth and human development. He grew up just like any other human being, which makes it so incomprehensible that God became a man and put himself in that situation and grew up as a human being. It says here he humbled himself. And we often think of humiliation as God becoming man. And this passage is talking about that. But the point of humiliation here is as his status of a, as a man. Thirty years Yeshua prepared for three years of ministry. The God-man spent thirty years in preparation. Now, I was in the car this week and heard Rush Limbaugh talking about some movie that's out about Christ when he was a child. And he talks about the miracles that he did and stuff. And I thought, well, it seems like John 2 said, and the wine in Canaan, this was the beginning of signs that he did. And I'm thinking, so, you know, so they're taking stuff out of the Apocrypha and they're, you know, and he's just praising this movie, how great this movie was, because this is what it was like. Not according to the Bible, it wasn't, okay? He grew up a human boy, under discipline, learned from his parents, studied the Word of God, 30 years in preparation for ministry. The word here, becoming, is ginomai. It's an instrumental particle. It indicates the means by which the action of the main verb is accomplished. The main verb is humble himself. How do you do this? By becoming obedient. That's how we humble ourselves, to God. We become obedient to God. It was to the will of God that the obedience was given. And even when that will pointed to suffering and death, he accepted it. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. We need to all come to the point, I think, where we can say that. Remember what Eli said when he got word that God had killed his two sons? He's God. Let, it, let him do what he needs to. Just submit it to God. He, he's in charge. He can do what he wants to do. He says, even to the point of death on a cross. The word even here calls attention to the shocking form of death. You know, we think of the cross, we think of torture. But there are worse tortures. Maybe not too many, but there are worse. The point here is the shame of the cross. More than the physical agony. See, there was no greater way in which people of the first century could express their utter disgust with a human being than by crucifying them. They considered them as garbage. It was the chief, the most extreme form of human degradation that existed. It was in the fullest sense of the word an obscenity. They just... They were garbage. And they would take them off the cross and they would throw them in the garbage dump. 
In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It wasn't even to be uttered in conversation. Cicero said, Let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. By Jewish law, anyone who was crucified under on a cross was under the curse of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This utterly vile form of punishment was that which Yeshua endured, and by enduring it, He turned that shameful instrument of torture into an object of our glory. We glory in the cross. And cross is metonymy. It doesn't mean you know we're all excited about that piece of wood. When we talk about the cross, we use metonymy, meaning all it represents. The sacrificial death of Christ. Now, this is an incredible passage. Why did He do this? Why would God leave heaven, become a man, grow up as a man, suffer and die? Why would He do that? He did it for us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for us. Yeshua did all the work, and what we are called to do is trust in what He has done. That's why a lot of people don't want anything to do with Christianity. I, I gotta do something. We are so works oriented. We gotta earn our way. You know, it's funny. I, I almost can't say that anymore in America. You know, we got the millennials now thinking they're entitled to everything. You know, we, we have an entitlement mentality. Why are all the millennials following Bernie Sanders? Because our schools have become communistic. A hundred years ago, the communists said, we need to get the children, we get the children, we'll get America. They came into the schools, the schools are very communistic in what they're teaching now, so we got all these millennials thinking, yeah, Bernie, we want free college, we want free health care, we want free this. Who pays for that? We just, government just pulls it out of the air. No, they got a printing press, they just make some more money. And sadly, the only thing that might turn this around is becoming totally communist. And then once people see that how desperate and bad that situation is, then maybe people will wake up. He died for us. Salvation is free. Not much else in life is, but salvation is free. Luther said, nothing more is required of justification than to hear of Jesus Christ and believe on Him as our Savior. That's it, people. It's faith in what He did for you. But so many Christians today, if you ask them, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I did this, I did. If you got one did, you're done. Okay? It's nothing you did. The answer is, because I'm trusting in Christ who paid my sin debt totally and completely. you got nothing to do with it. You start counting up your works, you're in trouble. You don't understand the gospel. The underlying thought of verses 5 through 8 is this. Surely if Christ humbled Himself so deeply, then we should constantly be willing to humble ourselves in our own small way. Surely if He became obedient to the extent of death, yet the death on a cross, we should become increasingly obedient to the divine instruction. We should accordingly strive more and more to achieve in our lives that spirit of our Master. That is the spirit of oneness, loneliness, humility, pleasing to God. You know, as we read this passage, verse 8 kind of ends, or where we want to go with this, but i got to go on to verse 9 because we can't end at verse 8. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name above every name. Because of His humility, God exalted Him 
And the implication is, you'll be exalted if you humble yourself. See, this is a practical principle that's applicable to all of us. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeshua taught this. And He lived it. Matthew 23.12 Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. But whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It's one principle with two sides. It's a promise of being brought low to those who exalt themselves. I think the greatest illustration of this is King Nebuchadnezzar. Walking around, look at what I have made. Look at the gardens I've made. Look at Babylon, the great sea that I've made. Next thing you know, he's out in the backyard eating grass. Acting like an animal. Because God humbled him. But it's a promise also of exaltation to those who humble themselves. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's one principle with two sides. As I said earlier, this passage here is a Christological gem. I mean, we get stuff here you're not going to find anywhere else in the New Testament. And to think this was an early Christian hymn. They sang this. They understand it. He emptied himself. Kanao. Always existed in the form of God. Always. But he didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be. He didn't have to demonstrate his deity. But he emptied himself of the manifestation of his deity and he became a bond servant to serve us. In this passage, it teaches the doctrine of the incarnation, the kenosis, the hypostatic union. Yeah, this is rich theological ground. Yet again, the reason that Paul teaches this is as an illustration of humility. He says you need to have the mind of Christ. And then he tells us, here's what the mind of Christ is. He left the glory of heaven to become a man to serve you. We are to, with humility, view others as more important than ourselves. We're to have the mind of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ. He humbled Himself. God exalted Him. We are to do the same. Verse 3. This would be a good verse to write on a note card, to commit to memory, put on your refrigerator, put on your mirror. You know, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourself. And then in verse 5, he says, have this attitude. What attitude? The one of humility. Have that attitude in yourself. And then he shows us in the rest of the verses how Christ did this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text in Philippians. This is rich ground, Lord. I thank you for it. I pray you'd help us to be able to comprehend the depths of it, Lord, that you left heaven's glory to become a man for the purpose of suffering and dying for those very people who hated you. It's an incredible story, Lord. And I thank you, Father, that we can call it grace. It is truly, Lord, all about grace from beginning to end. You provided everything we needed. Thank you for your incredible grace to us. Amen. All right, questions this morning. Okay, Gary, you asked the, Gary Cole asked the question, did Yeshua lay aside his omnipresence while he was incarnate? How do we answer that? Could he lay aside? He laid aside the prerogatives of that. He can't do away with it. Okay. Localized, but not limited. All right. He was God. So he had all the attributes of God. You can't, you can't take God's attributes away. Any of them. Or he doesn't, he's not God anymore. 
But he was localized in the person of Christ. And then Gary asked another question. I think it's the same. Was the incarnate Yeshua omnipresent? Well, he was God. So he had the ability, yes, of omnipresent. All of God is in every place. He knew everything that was going on. But he laid aside the prerogatives of that deity to function as a human. Um, I know this is a little complicated, okay? <laughs> but, you know, when you think about God becoming a man, that's a little bit complicated. Gary? Well, to comment on uh, Gary's uh, question, what, what happened to him? Where did he go when he was at the edge of the cliff? They were going to throw him off. And he just went away from the crowd. They couldn't find him. Yeah, we see those little things going on. But again, I, I really think that he's operating in the, in the power of the Spirit. I mean, we see a lot of the apostles doing very similar things to what Yeshua did. You know, in the power of the Spirit. And he's trying to teach them, we can do this. You know, he walks on water and, you know, who else walked on water? Peter jumped out of the boat. Here I go for a little bit <laughs> until he got his eyes on the storm instead of on his Lord. And then he, you know, he sunk. But these guys did incredible things in the Spirit. Beginning of a new age, and the Spirit was there to manifest this power. I know my question. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure I can get this out right, but based on your point, I take and I accept that Christ was God. He was part of the Trinity. He could not. Um, there could be no separation of them. He was, or then the Trinity doesn't exist, and, and all that. Um, at the cross, jumping to the end of the chapter of the book here, at the cross, often said Christ died on the cross. It couldn't be true because that would be the end of the Trinity, the end of uh, the Godhead, right? But he did not technically die. No, he died. Okay. Um, and Isaiah talks about the deaths. And, and my personal belief at this time, AT&T position, is that, yeah, Christ died on the cross. His humanity definitely died, all right? To put him in the grave, he died a physical death. But I believe he also died spiritually. In the sense, for three hours, he was separated from the Father. There was darkness over the land. And for the first time ever, the Trinity, there was a separation there. Because the Son was separated as he bore the sin of the world from the Father. And that's why I said Isaiah talks about his deaths in Isaiah 53, plural. He'll expand on that again. Yeah. <laughs> again, I know we're treading in deep water here, but I think it's well worth it. Um, stuff we need to understand. Anybody else? You done?